Welcome to episode 39 of the Different Doctor Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story, blah, blah, blah. How you doing, Doc? Very well. Um, I'm, I'm always very well, um, particularly when we get to talk about Doctor Who. It, yeah. uh, it, gives, it gives me something to look forward to during the day, and uh, it, it adds a sparkle to my evening. Sure. And, and for me, this project is just a great excuse to go back and watch a bunch of stories that, you know, that, that I oft overlook, shall I say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I've ever re-watched this since its first transmission. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the one we're going to talk about today, and it's it's a, a good excuse for me, if you like, to to watch Doctor Who in a bit of a sort of structured environment with 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 the thinking cap on a bit. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, you kind of I don't know about you, I can't speak for you, but I certainly watch them in in a, in a different in a different mindset than if I I don't know if I just sit down to watch an episode of Trek or an episode of Seinfeld or something, you know, that's that's just for shits and giggles, isn't it? Whereas this actually put some effort in and try and try and think of things that I'm going to say. Yeah, and I mean, it, I, I've i never gone out of my way to hate watch anything in my no. life. No. Um, I've, I've watched things that I've ended up hating. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I, I can't say this has sort of forced me to reevaluate anything yet mm-hmm. um but it has forced me to look at things that i didn't think i liked very much well, sometimes in a different light time and the rani we managed to extract uh, incredibly we managed to extract some positives from didn't we doc if i remember correctly well, it, um, but I, I think the most positive thing we ended up to say about it um and th- this, this still makes me laugh um, is that it's merely it's merely not very good <laughs> it's just incompetent yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's 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 just a bad doctor who story no worse than any other bad doctor who story yeah. um, it isn't actually the inhuman atrocity that we thought it to be <laughs> no I, I was expecting my eyes to be bleeding by the end of it but it wasn't that bad um i think we did say it was really well directed too there we go and, and and some nice special effects. Yeah. Um, so you say. Well, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Corrections, Doc. We've got uh, just three today. Um, the good doctor here asked whether ambassadors of death work better in colour or in black and white. But we never actually answered the question, Doc. As, as normal, we went off on a wild tangent and never returned to the subject. So, so let's thoughts? answer it now. Exactly. <laughs> what are your thoughts here? Um... <laughs> I almost think of it as being two completely different things because I, I saw it first in black and white and that was the version of it that I, I, I came to know and love. It's the same thing with the Silurians, honestly. I first mm-hmm. saw it in black and white and I didn't take to them very much at all when I first saw them in colour. Um, and I found myself thinking like, no, Liz's dress is the wrong colour. Yeah. Um, and just all kinds of... You didn't expect it to be that shade of green. No, mm-hmm. um, I think it works just as well in either, and I have a marginal taste for it in black and white. Mm. I mean, I think I'm the same as you, really, Doc. My first exposure to Ambassadors of Death was like some ropey old black and white copy, a fourth generation VHS copy. Um, 
rolling all, ro you know, the, the, the image rolling all over the place and no amount of resetting your tracking sorted that out, Doc, let me tell you that. Um, no, the, the, the fact not helped by the completely, crummy, the, the completely crummy televisions and video recorders that were all we could afford at the time. Exactly. Um, the colorization job... Um, I mean, that's a question. Are they actually colorized, or did they find the like the color prints? Um, what they had was as follows: um, various different kinds of color recording, none of which were broadcast quality, mm -hmm. and a black and white recording, which was of broadcast quality. So, effectively, the, the the technological challenge, which couldn't be solved until the digital era, without a BFI budget, um, was to synchronize all of the different colour versions they had and layer them one on top of the other and get the ratios right and get the frame rates right. Um, so they could use the black and white copy, which was excellent, for definition, and the colour copies to do nothing but fill in the colours. Yeah. So effectively, uh, what, what you're seeing is, um, imagine a comic book that's derived from an artist's original coloured drawings, which have then been degraded. And the the pristine black and white line versions have been copied onto tracing paper and overlaid over the smudgy colour versions. So they're the original colours. It's not colourised like mm. let's, the, 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 the horrible old copy of Night of the Living Dead that we used to have as well, if you remember that. Yeah, and the, whenever I think of colourisation, I think of that kind of ghastly um, uh, American version of the Quatermass experiment. You can't escape it. Look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Oh, I... And War of the Worlds, I think, as well. I think that was colorized, too. This could be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Right. I think, I think I'm right about that. Oh. Um, that's, that, that's, a correct, that's, a, that's, that's for corrections like the next, next week if I'm wrong. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, Night of the Living Dead was the first thing I saw colorized. Yeah. Um, Johnny, you're still afraid. Stop it now, I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. And obviously that's digitally stenciling in colours that were never there on the original negative. Mm. Um, when you watch the Ambassadors of Death nowadays, what, what you're seeing is dodgy colour copies preserved either on pneumatic or in some cases on VHS. Yeah. 
to get the colours and then the black and white print to get the definition. See, I understand the point of, you know, trying trying your best to render a colour version of Silurians and Ambassadors of Death because they were originally broadcast in colour. The prints were, were, were thrown away. And so by reinstating it in colour, you're, you're effectively reinstating the original form. But Night of the Living Dead was originally in black and white, wasn't it, Doc? So what's yeah, the of course it point? Was. Yeah. Um, uh, people who are not people who've never like at least pursued amateur photography or amateur filmmaking mm. I don't think realise that the, the composition techniques and the lighting for black and white and colour are completely different Yeah. Um, when you're lighting for colour unless you're Mario Bava when you're lighting for colour um, you want to get as many natural colours as possible and you want to light things to show off the colors yeah. when you're lighting when it, when you're lighting for black and white you want to emphasize light and shade mm. um and so i mean i i started i started photography in black and white and like as as, as many people did uh, and i started processing in black and white and it takes a little while in fact it takes several years to begin to see in black and white so you don't point your camera at a thing and expect to get a faithful reproduction. You have to train your eye and train your brain to how to use the lighting that you have available and to use the equipment that you have available to get the effect that you want. And it, it's it's inevitably a slightly abstracted process. And I don't I don't think it's even possible right. to colorize something that a skilled director imagined being in black and white. Mm. Um, Colorizing, let's say, war footage or news footage is, 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 is a completely different thing. Because in those cases, all the guy was trying to do was get an image um, without being shot or without being knocked over. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, and if you know what the correct colors were, I, I, um, war correspondents would have shot in color if they had it. There's a Peter Jackson uh, movie from last, last year, I think, which is... Uh, exactly what you're talking about. It is, it's colorized um, footage from World War Two, I believe. I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called, but apparently it's very, very good. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that's a completely legitimate exercise because um, it's a recording of stuff that really happened, mm. um, and when that stuff happened, it had colors. Yeah, it had colors. In it. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, like, why anyone would think that a colorized version of, um, ooh, um, I, I don't know why anyone would think a colorized version of La Dolce Vita sure. would be a good idea. Or Caligula. Not Caligula, sorry, Nosferatu. Well, no, obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> Very disdainful there, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> Second correction here. I said that Doctor Who is made currently by an outside production company. This, of course, is not true yet. Until now, and this is where my confusion came. Until now, uh, modern Doctor Who has been produced exclusively by BBC Wales. I think you did say that. I, I think you said it was going to be produced by an outside. No, I, no, I didn't. Doc, I've done the edit. Yes, I did yeah. not. I got it wrong. Um, but as of RTD's return, production duties 
will be handled exclusively by a company called Bad Wolf Productions, a team that have previously worked on the show. So hopefully we are in safe hands. They were working on it back when RTD was here initially. So fingers crossed, Doc. It's all to the good. Um, we couldn't think of the na- last one. We couldn't think of the name of the Procol Harum lead singer. Have you got it yet, Doc? Has it bubbled up? Um, I, I want to say Gary Brooker. And you would want to be absolutely correct. That's that is it. Yeah, Gary Brooker. Well done, sir. Um, what are we watching, Doc? Anything? Um, I haven't had any chance to watch anything since uh, mm. since since last we spoke. Yeah, um, that's all right. I've um, I've been doing some advanced reading um, because I'm getting re- ready for uh, our annex trip through uh, Patrick Troutonland. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing some advanced reading in preparation for one of our other projects as well. Oh, yes. Um, and um, I've been listening to some uh, delightful old French pop music. I've been listening to uh, Francois Addy quite a lot. Oh, lovely, Doc. Lovely. And can you give me a track title? Uh, Tous uh, les jeunes filles et les garçons. Tous les jeunes filles et les garçons. Jeunes filles. I believe it's the track title. Mm-hmm. Tous les garçons et les filles de mon âge se promènent dans la rue de Bardeux. Tous les garçons et les filles de mon âge savent bien ce que c'est qu'être heureux. Et les yeux dans les yeux, et la main dans la main, ils s'en vont amoureux. I finally finished what I finally finished my full rewatch of TNG Doc Star Trek: The Next Generation. Engage. Engage at warp nine point three. Ensign, engage. Take us out of here. Doc, we go, Captain. You want to be the one to explain when the captain says engage, and we just sit here? Engage. Engage. Oh my God, that hasn't taken you like very long at all. Well, I think it's taken about six months actually. Um, um, Seinfeld was the one that I blasted through, um, but yeah. TNG's, TNG's taken a, a sensible amount of time, I think. Um, but I think the last time we spoke about this, you were halfway through season two. Oh, really? I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe I've got a sadder life than I thought. <laughs> oh dear. Um, now, here's my analysis. Um, season one, really clunky. Some good ideas, poorly executed in general. Still has the whiff of uh, the original series about it, and that's you know because you've got uh, the likes of DC Fontana and the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry, still still hanging <laughs> about the place like fucking Sir Alex Ferguson at Old Trafford. Just one. Not to interrupt. I hate to interrupt you. Hmm. Because you're going to come in with the authoritative view, can I go with what I remember from my yeah, last watching, which was in the 90s? Season one, valueless. Season two, clunky as hell with some good ideas. Yeah. Season three, oh my God, this got good all of a sudden. Yeah. Season uh-huh. four, Jesus Christ, it got better. <laughs> season five, damn, I knew it couldn't last. Yeah. Um, season six, oh my God, it's back, 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 back. Yeah. Season seven, um, well, I guess they had to run out of ideas sometime, but, you know, that had some really good bits in it. 
Yeah, you're you're not far off, you know, Doc. I think I don't. I, I wouldn't classify season one as worthless or valueless. Um, you know, there are there are some in, individual episodes that stand out. Data Law, one one zero zero one zero zero one. Catchy title. Um, <laughs> Arsenal of Freedom. Conspiracy, of course, Doc. You forget that's in season one. Um, yeah. You know, um, Neutral Zone. Yeah, there's there's some good stuff in there. Just really poorly executed, and there are some absolute stinkers. Um, season two, it is an improvement. You know, some of the clunkers gone. Um, the characters are starting to to get more fully formed. The, the you know, it doesn't fit. It it starts to feel like 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 eighty sci-fi rather than sixty sci-fi. Importantly, um, yeah. but you are right. Then then we hit seasons three and four. And suddenly it's all guns blazing. The budget has clearly gone up. The effects are, are much, much better. They're, they're, they've all gone to acting school over over the hiatus somehow. Um, then season five, I mean, it, it, it is a definite drop in quality, but there are still some absolute spankers in there, like the cause and effect and unification. Um, re- I think Redemption Part Two is in there. Um the only bits of season five I can remember is the fucking soap opera about Wolf and his family. Um, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can't quite remember where that where that was. That in season five, was it? Well, that that's my memory of that's what season memory. five was. Yeah, <laughs> and, and your memory is is, is is spookily accurate. So I'm gonna I'm gonna believe you, Doc, um, <laughs> <laughs> because you scare me sometimes. Um, and but then, but then yeah, season six again is is an absolute absolute smash um and then series seven is so it, it's it's so schizophrenic because the episodes are either really really great or utter utter drivel um and it does it really does feel like a series running out of steam you you know a series is running out, running out of steam when every other week they're introducing like a, a main character's family member that previously had never been mentioned yeah you know you know yeah. you're in trouble and that, and that was happening a lot so i think george geordie got a mom um, Wolf got a brother. Picard got a, a, a an old flame or something like that. Bev, <laughs> Beverly falls in love with a rapist ghost. It's all very strange. <laughs> it's all very strange. There's, early on um, in when Star Trek: The Next Generation existed, um, my good friend, the mathematician, um, and I were looking at the box covers. Slight, somewhat mockingly in HMV on Corporation Street. Um, and um, I'm pretty confident it was uh, the cover of um, The Offspring, um, which has like some very badly realised monster on the cover. And I pointed at it and said to my friend, what in God's name is that? And my friend glanced at it and without missing a beat and completely deadpan goes, that's something Wesley falls in love with. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just completely off the curve and completely <laughs> deadpan. One of the funniest things I've ever encountered in my life. That is great. Yeah, that is great. Um, yeah, that, I know the exact episode you're talking about. The offspring is is the offspring is actually the that that's the episode where Data makes his own daughter, um, which is a good episode. So I didn't episode. mean that. No, no. I think the daughter's called Lal. That's a very good episode. Um, the one you're talking about is uh, the the Dauphin. Um, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, it, it, that, that's quite. That's really, really crackers. I quite like it, but it, 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 it is not a popular episode. <laughs> and indeed, Wesley does fall in love with that monstrosity. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, you ready to get on with the show? Yes. 
welcome to part one of the show, which we call TARDIS Talk. It's topic of the week. Um, not re- well, it is a topic, I suppose, but not, I'm, I'm not going to put it in a, a, as a question form like I normally do. Instead, I'm just going to hit you with two words, Doc. It's like a, a, a little thought prompt, a, a word association game. Um, okay. And you tell me what what comes to mind. Doc, I'm going to say to you, fan fiction. Off you go. No interest. Haha, <laughs> right. Uh, beginning and end of it. Mm. Um, it's a thing. I know it exists. Um, I'm very happy for the people who write it. I'm very happy for the people who enjoy it. Um, I mean, it's... It's as important in my life as women's professional lacrosse. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, I bet you there are people who are really into it. Um, well, there certainly and, are. And, you know, I'm really, really happy that those people have found their thing. Mm. I think it's great that they have a culture they can participate in mm. as well as just consume. Um, I've got no interest in Doctor Who of any kind except what's on telly, and that's it. Sure. Got no, got no interest in the radio plays. Got no interest in any of the expanded universe novels. Got no interest in fan fiction. Mm. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm the same as you, Doc. But but why is this? Why are we, you know, militant in this way? What, what, what do you think it is? Well, because if I want books, there are better books. Mm. Uh, if I want better amateur fiction, there's better amateur fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason. I, what I'm a fan of is Doctor Who, not Star Trek The Next Generation, Doctor Who, the television programme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Um, I'm at least as interested in the craft of making television as I am in the storytelling. Yeah. Um, I like watching what directors do in the context of visual ed- of, of visual media. Mm. I like watching what directors do with cameras. I like watching what actors do with their parts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in listening to the incidental music. I'm interested in looking at the special effects. Um, I mean, it, I know this is almost truistic to say, but um, I cherished my collection of target novelizations. And as soon as I got a video copy of some description of that particular story, I never touched the novelization ever again. Very interesting, and and I think my path was was much the same. You know, I I would regularly go to my local library, and you know, and browse for the you know for the for the latest um, target book that they'd acquired, mm-hmm. you know, and dutifully take it out on loan, gobble it up in a couple of days. Can I can I make an incredibly pedantic observation here? Go on, Doc. If you got them from the library, they would have been WHL and not Target. Because oh. even the children's library only stocked hardbacks, and the hardback uh, and Target was the paperback imprint of W. H. Allen. Now I was definitely getting paperbacks from the library. Um, this might have been after my time then. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely, Doc. Yeah, because I, I remember they had at the front of the library, in the in the children's part of the library, they had one of those kind of spinny plastic book things oh in in the wire spinners the wire spinners and it's dead of, right it was full of target book stuff um i no you're right um i'm right too because the ones on the shelves the hardbacks um were in the wh allen imprint but you are dead right there was always a wire spinner it was. um near the front and it always had the novelization of the brain of morbius huh. 
which, which I kind of wanted to read, but I was too embarrassed to pick up because the cover was so fuck awful. Was was so what? Fuck awful. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but exactly the same as you. You know, as soon as I actually had the thing on video. Never, never touched it again. Um, no, you know, no inclination to read them ever again. Um, and, I, and I suppose it's for the same reasons if, as, as you've described. You know, a TV show is an amalgamation of many parts, isn't it? And, and it is the composition of those parts that determines whether you enjoy it or not. Um, and it's just impossible to capture in a book. Yeah, and I mean, but do do people who love Psycho feel the need to go out and read every other thing that Robert Bloch ever wrote? People who are fans of a visual media version or iteration of something, I don't think should feel any obligation to explore it in some other medium. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a fan of tele. I, I, by the same token, I've got no interest in reading Jane Austen, in watching Jane Austen adaptations. Sure. Yeah. Or I mean, would, would, what about Shakespeare? Would you watch uh, like a Kenneth Branagh version of, of, of Hamlet? Um, yes, because the drama is meant to be performed, and mm. unless it's one of those picky playwrights who puts stage decorate uh, uh, stage directions and mm. descriptions of costumes in, mm. um, then obviously plays are meant to be performed very, very flexibly. Yeah, um, I'd still regard it as a substitute for going to the theatre, mm. but you can't you you can't go to the theatre all the time. And what about um, film adaptations of novels? So if you've got an original novel, let's say like a Stephen King book, and then there's a film version of it. Where, where, where do you stand on that, Doc? Um, Stephen King's an interesting one, and I think this is a widely held opinion um, amongst Stephen King fans and Stanley Kubrick fans and people who are both. I think you can be fans of both. Um, I mean, I think it's possible to. Um, I think it's be. I think it's possible to be a fan of Stephen King, um, and like The Shining. Here's Johnny. And I think it's possible to be a fan of Stanley Kubrick and like The Shining. And sometimes those are even the same person. But I don't think even if it's the same person, they're appreciating the same thing. Sure. No, I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think Stephen King has, has, has peddled back on his um, dislike of the, of the Kubrick version of his book, primarily because, and I, I think this is true, Stephen King did, did wrote a teleplay for a TV adaptation that was absolutely awful by all accounts. Um, and so maybe, maybe he had to reevaluate the difficulty of actually, you know, transferring that story onto screen. Yeah, I mean, it, this has just occurred to me. I've read the print equivalent of 
all of the Stanley Kubrick films for which such thing exists. So I, I, um, I've, I've read The Short Timers. Um, I've read A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read 2001. Yeah. And I mean, in, in each case, I appreciate all of them, but I, I, I don't compare them as being... None of them is... I, I, I don't go looking for faith in film adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... I, there's there's a good reason like Stanley Kubrick didn't call Anthony Burgess and say I don't know how to direct this film you better come and do it yeah <laughs> sure mm-hmm. is it just a totally different skill set isn't it it's a completely different skill set and um, a completely different person's vision of what a thing should look like um, yeah you know how critical I am of the validity or even the possibility of auteur filmmaking. Um, but someone like Stanley Kubrick is the closest you're ever realistically going to, like so, someone who, I'm not saying this is a pejorative, um, I think it's probably true, and I think many people would agree with me, someone as OCD as Stanley Kubrick, um, who probably uses the original work as the bare bones of source material and then probably throws it away and never looks at it ever again. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's a good point, Doc. It, 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 these expanded universes occur in, in, in the strangest of places. I mean, maybe this isn't a strange one. Obviously, Star Wars has a massive expanded universe. But then mm. you get into like, video game areas. Things like Assassin's Creed has like a range of novels tied to it and comic books and stuff like this i have no idea who's buying this stuff look i've never met anybody i've never heard anybody on a video game podcast talking about them who's buying them i don't know i'd 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 need to see some numbers and i'd need to see some 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 economics Mm. um i mean no license holder is going to pass up the chance to make some profit Mm-hmm. no matter how small. I don't know how many novels you have to sell to get into profit. I don't know yeah. how many comic books you have to sell to get into profit. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether there's just this fan culture in the world that will buy anything with Assassin's Creed sprayed across it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, um, I, I, I think those people definitely exist. But multimedia adaptions of video games that are the things I find strangest in the world. I can understand why somebody would want to make a movie of a book. I can understand why someone would want to write a novelization of a movie. But the whole point of a video game, is it not, is that you interact with it. Yeah, absolutely correct. And And you take part in it. And in the next couple of months, Doc, we have the horrifying spectacle looming of a Hollywood movie version of Uncharted. I dread to think what they're going to do to that. I mean, aren't aren't video game movies like legendarily legendary in their how, how predictably awful they always yeah, are? I think it's right. I, I can't think of a good one. There have been a couple that have been like acceptable 
Talk, uh, the Assassin's Creed movie, funny enough, was all right. You're here to save my soul. I understand it's your birthday. <laughs> yeah. The party's just getting started. His name is Callum Lynch. We've traced his bloodline back 500 years to the Assassin's Creed. Um, I think that the kindest words I've ever heard spoken, and it's a movie I haven't seen and a game I haven't played, but the consensus of Silent Hill seems to be yeah. it's actually not a bad zombie film. Yeah. Um, but, like, it's, it's, it's nothing to do with the video game at all. Honey, sometimes when you go to sleep, you go on a little walk, and sometimes you talk about a place. I don't remember. That's why we're going to go there. So you can remember. And oh my God! Um, and of course, the, there's there's a special place in my heart for that one with uh, Mila Hufovich, who's um, in a soaking wet evening dress all the way through. Ah, Resident Evil, you're talking about. Deep underground, in a top secret research lab, security has been breached. A deadly virus capable of contaminating the entire world has been released. Oh my god. We have to get out of this building. Who is that? It's the brakes! It's okay, we're here to help now. And the Whatever, it's got yeah. him. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That's what you search for, isn't it? You don't search for the name of the film. Yeah. Um, I bought I, I, I it because of the box cover. Oh, fair enough, <laughs> um, so you can contact us by email at differentdocsos at gmail.com um, on Twitter at SOS Different. I'm going to give you the Facebook, guys, but it's ridiculous. It's it's mo.moses.1048. Best of luck, guys. See you there. Um, let's move on to part two. <laughs> <laughs> Jenkins? Yeah. Up for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part two of the show, which we call Five Rounds. Me and the Doc are still it's called Five Rounds Rapid. Me and the Doc are still chuckling about our ridiculous Facebook address. Um, <laughs> today's story is, of course, Vengeance on Varus. Hello. Hi. I want to know what this place is. A prison planet. A colony for the criminally insane. Who are you? A student of science. Let the show begin. I want to hear them scream. For sedition, thought rebellion, and incitement of other rebels to organize, I forbid your execution to proceed. It's crazy. C cruel. 
It's Varos. All the functions of the Punishment Dome are recorded as warnings to miscreants everywhere. Written by Philip Martin, um, who also wrote Mind Warp the following season, um, and was pretty much set to write a, an unfilmed story called Mission to Magnus, which never saw the light of day, presumably because of the uh, hiatus before McCoy's era began. Um, Directed by one Ron Jones. In Doctor Who, he did Black Orchid. Well, go on, Doc. One, two, three, four, five others. I've, I've just given you the first one, Black Orchid. Jesus. Do you know? Next. Um, as far as directors go, maybe. No, I, I, I give up. He did five other Doctor Who stories. Black Orchid, Time Flight, Arc of Infinity, Frontios, and Mind Warp. Um, God, some real stinkers then. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't want to say anything, Doc. Um, as well as Juliet Bravo being the other big show that he directed on. Um, music by Jonathan Gibbs, who wrote the music for The King's Demons, Warriors of the Deep, this one, and The Mark of the Rani. Some uh, real stinkers then. Wow. Um, main cast, of course, Colin Baker as the Doctor, Nicola Bryant as Perry. Other notables, we've got Nabil Shaban as Sill, Martin Jarvis as the Governor, Forbes Collins as Chief Officer, Nicholas Chagrin as Quillam, um, Sheila Reed as Etta, and Stephen Yardley as Arak. Um, um, and an, un, uh, a, uh, a non-speaking and um, very half-naked Jason Connery as well. Oh, really? Um, is that not is 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 he not the the prisoner who's being tortured for everyone's entertainment? Oh, is that who he is? He's just not on the yeah. podcast list that I've. Oh, you're right, Doc. I just missed him. Yeah, Jason Connery as John Dar. You're quite right. There you go, Doc. Yeah, I missed it. Um, I watched this this afternoon, Doc. Don't start us off. One thing I've learned during this project, if I didn't know it before, is that I'm equally as interested in Doctor Who when it fails as when it succeeds um and I, i'm going to disagree with uh the story here um good doctor who stories are all good in different and interesting ways and bad like i don't just mean bad doctor who stories like we concluded time of the rani was just a, a not very good doctor who story but ones that fail utterly always fail in ways that are at least as interesting. Um, I think this is one of the most catastrophic failures in the history of Doctor Who. Okay. That's a strong start, um, Well, it's... At first, I, I had it logged in my mind as being merely dull. Yeah. Um, after this most recent rewatch... I could see every single thing that Philip Martin was trying to do with the script. What I don't understand is why it never occurred to him that he'd never actually be able to do any of these things. Mm. On the budget we're talking about? No, I mean no. conceptually. Conceptually, cast, okay. Cast your mind back to um, when we were talking about Peter Capaldi's first story a little while ago. And I said that they very clearly wanted to portray a whole bunch of transgressive sexual relationships. Um, so they wanted to portray an interspecies relationship. They wanted to portray a lesbian-subdom relationship. Mm -hmm. But because it's Doctor Who, 
of course you can't you can't show stuff like that on family tele- on, on family television mm. when that thing was being written did it not occur to the writer that they weren't going to be able to go nearly as far as they needed to go to make their thing as transgressive as they imagined it to be sure. like, didn't that occur to them sure so the, you know the, the, in, in order to realize this concept it would have to be like a hard 18 yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. yeah i get that um we're talking uh, something like uh, i don't know like uh, fortress starring uh, christophe lambert aren't we stories below ground halfway to hell and no way out what they give you 31 years you are about to enter the fortress a privately owned maximum security prison operated by the mentel corporation john brunnick the most decorated captain in the history of the black beret prisoner 95763 step forward to be intestinated you have nothing you are nothing Well, uh, 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 the example that everyone uses is um, it, it, it's it's like sort of trying to make a PG version of um, Salo. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah, hundred days of uh, uh, Sodom is that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so I mean, uh, and so obviously you have to leave out the mutilation, torture. You have to leave out the shit eating. You have to leave out the um, graphic anal intercourse. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to leave out the more shit eating. You have to leave out um, the forced defecation. You have to leave out the forced urination. You have to leave out the tongue slice. And, and by now, you've got a five-minute movie. <laughs> um, you uh, you also have to leave out the um, uh, the after-dinner stories that all the prostitutes tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, what you're left with um, is a vicar and a judge going for a drive in the countryside and some soldiers dancing. Sure. I mean, there's a good example of, of that problem that, that I noted in this story. It, it, it didn't bother me, like as it seems to have bothered you, but but I did. I spotted the moment. You've got the, this acid bath, and, yes. and and a guard gets kind of toppled into it, and then the doctor almost gets toppled into it, and then the other guard gets toppled into it, and the whole time I'm watching it, and I desperately want, you know, one of those guards' hands to emerge out of the, out of the fluid, you know, or the corrosive magical fluid having weaved its weaved its magic and torn the flesh off i also yes. wanted there to be some kind of bloody organic scum to form at the top of the at the top of the of, of the liquid but of course neither yes. of those things happened um, like what i wanted was after the first ga- um guard falls in the acid bath i want i wanted him to cl- to make a really good go at clawing his way out yeah. and by now his clothes would have um, being burned away, yeah. uh, but his horribly scarred genitals and buttocks would be clearly on display. As he'd almost managed to claw his way out of the acid bath, his hands would break off at the wrist and his eyeballs would explode, <laughs> and what was left of him would slop back into the acid bath, and after a short while, the remains of his head with grinning teeth would then float to the surface. That's what I wanted <laughs> That's to what see. you wanted, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think we, we, we both wanted something like redolent of that scene in Robocop, didn't we, where...
the guy gets covered in toxic waste. Yes. And, then, and slowly over five minutes starts to fucking melt until he's eventually hit by a police car and explodes in a shower. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. Here is why it's a failure. <laughs> it's a story that wants to be about the following things. Violence in the media, yeah. video nasties, pornography, um, violent entertainment used for the pacification of the masses, um, the morals of violence in visual media, um, and censorship. Yeah. But the format it's placed itself in, it can't address any of those topics. Um, I Would mean, you rather see, you know, something try, you know, to be daring and push the boundaries and fail than not try at all? Of course I would. Um, yeah. And and that's that's why I think it's a complete failure, but it's interesting. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, I was sort of toying with the, um, the in a parallel universe, um, this story was never actually made by the BBC, but it was subcontracted, and it, it, it was it was made in the Philippines and directed by Ruggiero Deodato. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, and you know that's that's the version you really want to see. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'd like to see something try and fail um, than not even try. And I'm happy that Doctor Who, in the mid '80s, um, at least made some sort of lip service at addressing those things um, instead of just pretending they didn't exist and sucking up to the right-wing press like John Nathan Turner usually did. Sure, yeah. yeah. Because I, I liked the, um, you know, like, like, like the, the general horror-inflected sense of the whole concept. I, I, do, I do agree with you that, it, that it's problematic because it is impossible to realise at what time was this on TV, Doc, at, the, at this particular point? Was it like 7 o'clock at night or something? Oh, God, no, 5.14. 5.14, okay, 5.14, exactly. Um, uh, after the um, uh, after the football results. There we go. Um, but, 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 uh, but I still ap- ap- I appreciated, you know, the ideas being toyed with. Um, so having got that off my chest, yeah. um, what we're left with is actually what's on screen um and uh, the thing is even taking into account the things we've just been talking about it, it's still not very impressive it's still not a very good story is it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i quite enjoyed it doc so i think we're going to we're going to disagree on this one quite a lot that's fine yeah yeah um, um I d- let me give you something i really enjoyed I really enjoyed the dynamic between Perry and the Doctor in this one. You know, the, the relationship between Perry and, and, and the Sixth Doctor is, is, is generally noted for kind of how abrasive and, and unpleasant it, it, it can be. Obviously, starting in, in episode one, um, you know, we, 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 with a scene of domestic violence that, you know, that we've commented on previously. Um, but here, I thought, I found anyway, you know, that their character dynamic to be quite charming actually i like the fact that he was being like a sulky little boy when it when his toy had broken and she was like the like the mother figure go no 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 come on we we can do this we can fix it all we've got to do is make some efforts i liked it doc um so we're, we're following on from the end of um 
Attack of the Cybermen, which is yeah. obviously contains that 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 great revelatory moment um, right at the end, where the Doctor is and is is sort of confronted with what an ass he's made of absolutely everything twice in a row. Oh, that's or right. Three, three three times in a row now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he he makes a bollocks of absolutely everything in Caves of Androzani. He mm-hmm. makes a bollocks of absolutely everything in the Twin Dilemma. Then he makes a double clusterfoot bollocks of absolutely everything in Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> Yeah, um, and you know, because of his own inability to make a decision, um, if I'm right, the total toll at the end of Attack of the Cybermen um, is four largely innocent people dead, two genocides, um, and very serious damage to the time continuum. Mm-hmm. I think that's 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 um, how the uh, the football results come in at the end of that one. Sure. And you, you you sort of get that that reconciliatory moment um, at the end of Attack of the Cybermen, where where um, the Doctor basically goes, I, I, "Before I start fixing the universe, I need to fix me." Mm. But in this story, I, I think in the last in, in the last story, Kinder, you were commenting about the had it seems that like, like the fifth incarnation of the Doctor doesn't seem to give a fuck about his companions. Um, where, you know, happily put them in peril and doesn't seem to give a damn. Whereas here, you know, when Perry is in real trouble in that kind of what's what's it called, like the transmutation booth or whatever it yes. was, turning transmogrification, I think that's it, it. transmogrification uh, device, and <clears throat> you know she's being turned into some kind of bird creature, um, yeah. feathers and all. Um, you know, he's 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 you know genuinely mortified and and, and goes you know and does absolutely everything in his power. To make sure that, that that he prevents it in, in a way that maybe the Davison character wouldn't. The, what I'm increasingly surprised at is I had a memory of like the Fifth Doctor being a bit wet. Yeah. Um, and I'd sort of hoped I'd misimagined that as um, you know, like him him being concerned or him being more compassionate or so. Um, but no, he's just wet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's not merely ineffectual. He's like criminally li- uh, neglectful mm. um, on numerous occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and writers are clearly getting the hang uh, the hang of this as well. For the script editor, uh, talking about Kinder again now, for the script editor to pass a scene where the Doctor gets shown up by uh, Panna twice, and then by Doctor Todd. Um, and he doesn't get shown up on the basis of an experience that he that they've had and he hasn't. He gets shown up on the basis of pretty standard stuff that I, I think I was able to understand by age thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the apparently the fifth Doctor is completely unaware that any cultures embrace the concept of reincarnation. Right. Yeah. You you think he'd have stumbled across that at some point in his eight hundred years, wouldn't you? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. but. Um, apparently, um, it's 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 a great realization to him that um, the Kinder believe and may even um, practice this this thing called reincarnation, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that the Third Doctor claimed to have learned about Buddhism from a guru in India, and you'd, you'd have thought he might have mentioned it once or twice, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and. So the fifth doctor doesn't not only does not come across as compassionate and gentle, 
he doesn't merely come across as wet. Um, he comes across as a wet blanket who's like n- not even very bright. Um, I don't know whether this is... And when we get into season 20, you see, this makes perfect sense. The characterization of the Fifth Doctor is this sort of Tim Nice but Dim. I can't help but read as Eric Saywood's bash at a particular kind of... The, out- the, the output of a particular kind of English public school. Right. And then you get Turlow, who is a very different typified output of a different kind of English public school. Mm-hmm. So the Doctor is like the well-meaning soppy burger is also a bit thick. Yeah. Um, and Turlow is the nasty gay bully. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, here's some of the horror stuff that I liked or, or horror inflected or dark bits that I enjoyed duck. Um, even if they couldn't like fully be realized. Um, I like the, the notion of the governor being tortured for having the temerity to make a suggestion of a vote for something that, that he then went on to lose. And then, and then people watching the, the torture taking place. I thought that was a nice, that's a nice concept. isn't it? I, I, I can't, I've never seen that anywhere else before. I thought it was a great idea. Um, it's clearly based on um, there's there's an actual um, study in behavioural psychology, isn't um, where um, uh, um, an actor um, or a student um, who is kind of doing some role play, um, and there's another student who is allowed to administer electric shocks to them when they get questions wrong. Yes, oh yes, this is very famous, isn't it? And it, it, and they want to see. Like, I, I think the the aim of the of the study is to see how many people will actually administer what they believe to be like a life threatening shock. Well, escalating levels of pain. That's it. Um, and and then uh, con- conceivably lethal. Yeah, um, that's it. And, and obviously, the, the the outcome of the study is um, that far more people than you'd like to imagine um, uh-huh. would kill someone by electrocution for answering a question wrong. Yeah, but, but, but only if they're being instructed to do so by somebody in, in, a, in, a, in a, like a scientist lab coat. I think that's part of it as well, yeah. isn't it? You know, like an authority figure, basically. So I, I, I think that's where that derives from. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a neat idea, though, Doc. Yeah, I believe it's called the Milgram Experiment. Yeah, sure. That rings a bell. I believe that thing is called the Milgram Experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I wanted to say the Stanford Prison Experiment, but that's something else. That is something different, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, that, that, that's where regular members of society turn into absolute bastards if they've got the uniform on, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, a fact that um, apparently needed demonstrating further um, after it became apparent that the Nazis had absolutely no trouble report, uh, recruiting volunteers to be concentration camp guards. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, the business of, of, of the governor being tortured for making bad decisions, um, I think that's I think that's a go at a particular kind of populist leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a bit of equanimity on the part of Philip Martin. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to rail against the hard right, um, but there's, there's a particular kind of salt-of-the-earth leftist um, who, will, you know, uh, uh, who will say things like, 
um, oh, they should star politicians or they should talk to politicians when they make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you get the idea, don't you, that that's the kind of thing that kind of lurks in the back of the mind of people who read the, um, the Daily Mirror? Well, I think they are legion on Twitter, Doc, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, these people think nothing of literally trying to destroy people's lives for having the temerity of having a different opinion to them. Um, you know, awful, awful individuals. Um, I don't think there was Twitter in 1986. No, of course not. No, but, you know, I, 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 I'm relating it to the modern world, Doc. I know you don't like dwelling here, but, it, but it, it's where we are. Yeah, um, and I, I think it just sort of shows a bit of admirable equanimity um, yeah. because, like, the stuff that Philip Martin is bashing here, um, no, we'll come to this in the mind probe section. We'll come to this later. Fair enough, Doc. Uh, please continue with the, 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 the horror-inflected parts. Physically transforming someone into the thing they most fear. It's a grisly concept. Of course, they couldn't do it, but it, but it, I, I think I think it's a, a really nice, grisly, unpleasant idea, Doc. Not only do yeah. you fear this thing, not only do you have it amplified in your mind, but you actually almost like Kafkaesque, like transform into it. Well, I I appear to be quoting big black liner notes quite a bit recently. Uh -huh. um, I think this is from the liner notes to songs about fucking and the, uh, a, 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 along with the second but last track it's um, little by little without even realising it every one of us turns into the thing they hate most become the um, thing we hate yeah and um like having a machine that um, that that can just do that to you mm. um, is the purpose of transmogrification um is it supposed to be therapeutic and so uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the episode of the twilight zone where there's like a and it's like a vile small town bigot um who through like the three acts of the episode um, finds that maybe he's been transformed or maybe just how he is viewed is changed. Um, but he finds himself in a jungle surrounded by people who think he's Korean. Um, he finds himself in Alabama in the 1820s surrounded by people who want to lynch him. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, he finds himself um, being Jewish in Warsaw in 1939. And the end of the episode is he's actually stuffed onto a deportation train and taken away and that's where the episode ends it, yeah i don't think the twilight zone is a particularly outre thing to think that someone who writes for doctor who might have watched do you C certainly not no certainly not i, I would imagine um, most of them devoured every single episode yeah um is the trans is, is the transmogrification machine is is it is it just torture or is, is it it occurred to me that it was supposed to have a therapeutic mm. um or a rehabilitatory, but um, 
if you behave particularly badly towards a certain group of people, or if, if, if you've committed hate crimes, it turns you into the thing you hate. Sure. Well, it, so I, supp I suppose the answer to the question is it depends on how, how it's being implemented, doesn't it? If, yeah. you know, it, it, if, 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 if you are turned into, into the thing that you hate, and that's, that's clearly a punishment and a torture, but if you're transmogrified into something pleasant and, and exciting, like, a, like a, an eagle, so in, you know what I mean? Then, then maybe that's therapeutic. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, 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 yeah, absolutely. Um, it puts me in mind of of Odo in Deep Space Nine. Um, and he yeah. has he has a couple of conversations with the like the, the chief woman founder um, <laughs> who looks a bit like him, and they're talking about. <clears throat> well, she's trying to explain to him that you know when you transform into the thing, you should try to learn how to become the thing yeah mm -hmm. so you know i guess uh -huh. if, i guess if that transmogrif if that transmogrification machine turns you into a cheetah on the serengeti well that's exciting you know but if it turns you into a dung beetle well that's horrific yeah um i i suppose i'm concerned with the concepts of the concepts of government and the concepts of justice um, what we've got here is, <laughs> um, it's a very early example of the wrong way in which the expression social justice is now used, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, so in the, in the thinking of John Rawls, social justice means something completely different to the way that in, 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 in the way in which the expression is used in like since I'd say 2016. Sure. Uh, I, um, and since then, it basically means um, public shaming and setting a lynch mob on, uh, and, and yeah, um, setting a lynch mob on people. That's not dogpiling, basically, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in the sort of, in, in, in 1986, in the sort of pre-internet, pre-smartphone um, era of Doctor Who, you've got a sort of very crude implementation of that, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, the idea that the the public can be very easily pacified by presenting them with a simulacrum of direct democracy. Does this predate the Running Man? Once inside the zone, the runners have three hours. They've got to go through all four game plots. Three hours or less, and they're going to need every second because you know who's on their tail. I mean, maybe we should have saved it for the mind probe, but I've asked the question now. What do we think? The, 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 that, that, that's similar, isn't it, really, in, in concept? You know, the running man is like a, a like a really extreme version of something like gladiators, you know, where they actually die. 
and 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 you know the the the, the buying public are watching it from from the safety of their living rooms. Yeah, and um, I I think that's got even deeper roots. So um, many people have pointed out the year of the Sex Olympics from 1970 being mm -hmm. uh, like prefiguring reality television or prefiguring Big Brother type reality television. Mm -hmm. I actually want to see Big Brother Extreme colon with weapons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the iteration. That, that's that's um, or. Um, uh, many people um, have identified a Death Race 2000. Oh, um, that's a good point. Yeah. As yeah. the start. Uh, and I mean, you can follow that through to like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. Um, and come to think of it, you can probably follow it all the way back to the Circus Maximus. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, like to its 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 origin point in the Roman Empire. And yeah. I bet you, I, I, I bet you the idea of making poor people fight for the entertainment of rich people probably didn't even start with the Romans. Mm, mm. Um, I've answered my own question, Doc. Uh, the film version of The Running Man was two years after this in 1987, but the, of course the, 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 the Stephen King novella, which it is based on, came out in 1982. So it is possible that it, that it was an influence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so um, any more horror-inflected bits? Um, well, the cliffhanger. Certainly. Have we ever seen the Doctor apparently actually dead in the way that we did at the end of this episode? I know we've got the, the, the deadly assassin cliffhanger where he's being drowned, but actually yeah. apparently dead. The closest, the closest I think we come is um, uh, the end of episode one of The Demons, um, oh, yes. where uh, he, he's, he's, he's actually frozen solid into a block of ice. Ah, very good. Very good. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then that's okay because it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, it gets better. That's all right. Don't worry, kiddies. Um, and the last one I got was, was, was a quote from Quillam, which I loved. I want to see them scream until I'm deaf with pleasure and see their limbs twist in excruciating agony. Oh, it's pretty strong stuff for 514, Doc. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose I should appreciate the... I, I, I suppose I, I should appreciate the thing more for trying. Mm. Um, all, opin all opinions here are valid, as you well know. Yeah, um, I, I suppose in the end, I, I, I'm not even close to hating the story. I, I, I just find it, I find it hard to get up a good head of opinion about it, which is, I think, from my personal experience, is is what renders it such a failure. Um, it's about a bunch of subjects that are close to my heart, and it's about a bunch of topics that are, are, are very hot potatoes to me. Um, but it manages to not provoke me a bit. I mean, I think it was you who, um, like, I'm pretty sure it was you who once made a comment about Make Them Die Slowly, the uh, Umberto Lenzi film. Um, mm. And you said, um, whoever knew tits and gore could be so boring. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um... And, you know, you've, you've got what's supposed to be a highly politicised story about violence and pornography and censorship. Mm. And, you know, all, all of the stuff that I've had great intellectual investment in um, but it, I, I can't even work up any sort of head of enthusiasm for for the thing even as it's talking about stuff I'm really interested in sure yeah so it, 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 it's just not pressing your buttons is it basically not and it should be 
Oh, well, it, it's it's literally made for someone like me. Yeah, I agree. Um, Martin Jarvis, quite the coup, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, it's obviously his second, third appearance in Doctor Who. Is it really? Um, yeah, he was in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, he was a giant moth in the web planet. Oh, fabulous, really. Yeah, I bet he's so proud of that. Um, <laughs> it, he, um, it's a source of such everlasting shame to him that not only did he mention it in his autobiography, mm. um, but he's mentioned it on uh, in at least two interviews, non-Doctor Who-related interviews that I've seen him in since. Oh, good for him. So, yeah, good for him. I like, I, I like that. that. That shows a sense of character, and I like it, Doc. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, my my, my, my favourite iteration of the anecdote is that um, apparently um, the um, the director told him um, that um, he was being offered the part of um, uh, uh, a prince who must battle foreign invaders to regain his father's kingdom, mm. which is kind of true. Kind of true, Doc. Mm. Yeah, yeah, only, flirt, only flirting with fiction. Um, I, think it was, I think it was the dressing up as a giant moth. <laughs> <laughs> thing that the director probably wisely concealed from him at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> there's a great um, line, Doc, that really made me laugh. Um, th 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 there's a guard that that's having to stand near. I can't remember if it's the um, uh, the Jason Connery character or, or maybe later in the story. Um, and in order to in order to protect him from the hallucinations, they give him this piece of kit. Um, and, 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 the, and one of the other characters, just to make sure that he's got it, says to him, do you have your anti-hallucination helmet? <laughs> <laughs> I really love that line, Doc. <laughs> it's, it's, if you can't have an anti-hallucination helmet, I think at least you need to get the black marker pen and write that on a T-shirt. Oh, I really, really want one, yeah. Have you your anti-hallucination <laughs> Brilliant. Um, um, I mean, th that's that's the closest that's the closest we get to a season seventeen line. Um, I mean, in it, this it's poll. so tongue in cheek, isn't it? I, I loved it. I, I mean, it, it's not quite as good as um, hmm. What's this? We call it the pit. There's something moving down there. It's some sort of creature. What is it? We call it <laughs> the creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's like the wise woman line from Blackadder, isn't it? To, <laughs> yes. It's the same riff. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, you're right. Have you got your anti-hallucination helmet? <laughs> I really, really, I really enjoyed it, Doc. Um, another thing I enjoyed, it's only brief, but I did enjoy it. I always <laughs> like it when they lose the TARDIS. I, I just like that as a motif, Doc. I always enjoy that. Um... Uh, it's obviously one of the things that goes right back to the very origins of the show, that in the first five or ten minutes, they'd find a way to separate the TARDIS crew from the TARDIS. So they could... Um, and this is obviously a function of um, William Hartnell's Doctor. Say William Hartnell's Doctor to me immediately after this passage. Um, because William Hartnell's Doctor would obviously in those early stories, when confronted with something a bit hairy, he'd probably just get in the TARDIS and fuck off again. <laughs> <laughs> William Hartnell, um, Doctor. Um, something I meant to comment about Kinder last night. Mm. Um, do you think Mary Morris is like is, is, is channeling William Hartnell? Um, I, I just really hadn't thought about it, Doc. Um, 
Presumably you do, so give me some uh, give me some insights, sir. Um, it, it's not particularly her, her, it's none of her lines, and it's not even particularly um, her, her delivery. Uh, it's some of her facial expressions. Yeah. Some of her very like haughty, imperious, uh, imperious facial expressions and her body language mm. uh, that you can really, really, really imagine like a, a, a feminized first doctor. Sure. sure. Um, I meant to say that last night and I didn't. That's um, all right, Doc. But... You've, got, you've got it out now. That's all right. Our, our listeners will remember. It's only last episode, Doc. We're all right. Um, yeah. Sorry to be a bit reductionist here, but uh, Nicola Bryant is just smoking hot in this story, Doc. Um, I've said this before, and I don't mind repeating myself. I think Nicola Bryant is, uh, should have been one of the great beauties of her age. Yes, she really is a beautiful woman, isn't she? Um, I mean, unfortunately for her, her age happened to be the mid-1980s when what was popular was blonde and excessively aerobicized um, and really, really bad eye makeup. I mean, if Nicola Bryant had been around in the early 70s, let's say, um, when being a little bit plump um, and not to put to find a point on it, having large breasts... Sure. Um was kind of much more of oh no i mean she's a, a, she really is a, a genuinely beautiful woman yes she really really is um did you like the last line duck we're free what should we do don't know because i quite like that um i liked it as well yeah um, brilliantly satirical i thought doc you know Suggesting that we, you know, we, as a society, as individuals in that, as citizens in the society, we actually need the rules and restrictions. Otherwise, we're kind of lost and flapping about like, like, like lost little puppies. Um, it's it's a very eighties thing to debate, isn't it? Mm. Um, I haven't, um, I haven't actually quoted New Model Army for a little while. Uh, there's one of their songs, and um, the line before the chorus is, give us liberty or give us death. Now you've got both. What do you want next? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a Dead Candidates album where the, uh, with, with the title of Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. Oh, yes, um, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when you began to get the rise of libertarianism um, as a political movement in its own right, um, which before um, I would have categorized as anarcho-capitalism or laissez-faire capitalism. Um, but you, you began hearing people talk about, you know, like a freedom above all else. Mm. And what follows from that is obviously well, what's, what's freedom? Mm-hmm. Um, freedom from something, sure. freedom to do something. Mm-hmm. And of course, by the end of the 1980s, we learned what freedom means is the freedom to fuck somebody else over. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Capitalism to its extreme, basically. 
Um, yeah, no law, no government. Yeah. Um, that stuff you that that stuff you've got, I'll be having that. Sure. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. That stuff that your country's got, we'll be having that too. Yeah. 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 It, it, um, it, 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 it's always been the problem with any kind of anarchy, hasn't it, Doc? You know the. the, 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 the it, you know, in my heart, I, I quite, I quite like the concept of, of of anarchism, but but of course, I am sensible to realise that that it could never possibly work. Um, this is too big of a topic for this one episode. Um, my thought is simply this: the civil society that we had hasn't always existed. At some point in the distant past, there were no government and no law and no rules. Yeah. And then government and laws and rules and civil society arrived from somewhere by some means. And by what means depends on whether you agree with Locke or Hobbes um, or Rousseau or Marx or Nietzsche or Aristotle um, or the Bible or the Quran and some other stuff as well. And I think this is what's being referenced in the last line of this episode. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to somehow do away with civil society and laws and all of that stuff, wouldn't they just appear again the same way they did the first time? Sure. Just like in a, it, 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 just different figureheads, but the same principles apply. Um, I, I don't know what it would look like, but long ago there was no civil society and no laws and no rules. Mm -hmm. And then some civil society and some laws and some rules came from somewhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter where. If we got rid of all of the laws and rules and all the civil society and all of the teachers and the doctors and the politicians and all of that stuff, um, well, wouldn't it happen again? Wouldn't wouldn't some laws and rules and some civil society appear again? Sure. Mm -hmm. It seems logical, um, doesn't it? And why is there any reason to suspect it would be better this time than it was the first time? Mm. Yeah, but, um, you know, in my mind, there would be a period of, of, of total chaos with people, you know, people killing each other, stealing each other's stuff for a bit. And then eventually they would realise, hang on, you know, if we actually work together in some way, then all of this madness can end. But the problem is the, the, the examples we've got, um, and I know they haven't happened on a global scale, I know they've only happened on a limited scale, the one, the, the examples that we're living through, like quite recently, is Liberia, and currently I would say Syria. Mm. And well, it don't ever fucking work out that way, does it? Mm. Mm. Sure. Um, it nothing ever does actually turn into a cooperative utopia. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to dream, Doc. It's nice to dream. Um, it's very nice to dream. Um, I've always found one of the most refreshing things about Doctor Who, um, and this is funny for me to say, considering how much I adore Kinder. Uh, Doctor Who has always steered very firmly away from utopias now, hasn't it? That's a good point, yeah. There, there are a couple of examples, I think, in modern Who. But I know I can't think of one in, 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 in kind of classic. Um, no, no. I don't, when, when I think of that kind of utopian world, again, my head turns towards Star Trek. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, um, Kinder is the closest you ever get, which is a, a, a primitive, like pr not, not even agrarian, pre-agrarian utopia and it, 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 it isn't even a society yeah. and that only exists because of the very good fortunes of the geology and the climate and um, mm -hmm. you know it, it's, it's explicitly stated that the kinder don't need agriculture because there's enough fruit for them to eat mm -hmm. um, and if you don't have to worry about food and shelter then uh, maybe civil society isn't even necessary sure doc 
it's been wonderful talking about all of these kind of highfalutin concepts with you, but I think it's time to, to ground it in reality. So should we move on to part three? Yeah. Commander. You are authorized to use the mind probe. What? No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call Not the Mind Probe. Here we just kind of ground the show at point of transmission as to what was happening in the world. Um, broadcast dates here, 19th and 16th of January 1985. US film releases of note, just the one, uh, Blood Simple, which is the Coen Brothers' first movie. The world is full of complainers. The fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Something can all go wrong. Was it? Your husband. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. I got a job for you. Are you familiar with uh, with their output, Doctor Coen Brothers? Um, I know Fargo. I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? <laughs> See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Uh, wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something called G's. It's terrible. Oh, I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. Mm -hmm. um, and the Big Lebowski, so I, the, the same ones that everyone else in the world knows. Two old sodas, Gary. Right. Good luck tomorrow. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, sorry to hear about Donnie. Oh, yeah, well, you know, sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes, uh, you know. Hey, man. How'd he do, dude? I wonder if I'd see you again. I wouldn't miss the semis. How oh, things yeah? been going? Strikes and gutters, ups and downs. Sure, I've got you. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Well, take care, man. Gotta get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well. Sure, yeah. Uh, so that, that Blood Simple's their first one. Uh, UK number one's just the one, uh, which was Foreigner. I want to know what love is. Bit of a banger, if you ask me, Doc. Here, Doc, that you, that, that you spotted. I imagine there's plenty on there. Um, I haven't talked about Philip Martin yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, considering that he wrote this thing, he's obviously the single biggest influence on it. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know which order to do this in. I don't know whether to talk about influences on Philip Martin or Philip Martin's influence on the thing that he wrote and was therefore quite influential about. Um, I interviewed Philip Martin in 1989 or 1990 um, in preparation for um, what looked like might have been an official BBC video release of Gangsters, the right. series he wrote in 1975. Yeah. Um, I got the chance to interview him um, and took my little video camera along and interviewed him at, at, at BBC Pebble Mill. Um, and what a fascinating and lovely and sweet and charming and erudite and intelligent and generous man he really is. That's lovely to hear. Um, I mean, like a... a a genuine professional um, of the old school who cares greatly about his craft and who cares greatly about what it is that he's being paid to do. Um, Gangsters is um, another one of those series that I... Season two, I need to revisit someday. Um, I found it hard work. Season one, I will uncritically heap praise on. Um, it's interesting that considering it was regarded as kind of borderline racist and going near a lot of hot topics that maybe shouldn't be gone near at the time when, when it was when it first came out looking back on it um it's practically a model for what people would now love to have as diverse programming um, so, I mean, from from the very middle of the 1970s, um, it's a kind of ensemble cast. And I can't think of another programme where, um, out of the five main characters, four of them are from ethnic minorities and three of them are people of colour. Sure. Um, it, it's an absolutely fantastic cast. Um, and it's, it's, it's really, really hard. I, I, it's Paul Barber, whose performance you, you remember, because um, he's such a tiny, screwed-up ball of rage. Um, and it, he's a simultaneously magnetic and admirable and pitiable and loathsome. Um, and it, it's, it's a fantastic piece of writing. Um, I don't think that... There definitely hadn't been a, a black character on UK television that good at that point. And I think it was many, many years before there was one that good after that. Mm. Um, I, Ahmed Khalil is absolutely fantastic in it and I, I really like the idea that it's the guy who's actually from a third world country who becomes who, who plays the role who's, who's, who's the authority figure in the series um, Morris Colborne is Morris Colborne mm. doing what he does best bless him um, and I, it's, it's just a whole bunch of fantastic performances and it's a whole bunch of um According to Philip Martin, it was his idea of trying to do an Indian melodrama, um, effectively set set in the UK. Yeah. Um, and also, he he really really wanted to do for Birmingham what Martin Scorsese did for New York, or something like that, which is like get get deep into the fabric of the town and use guerrilla techniques to have action sequences in amongst, amongst passers-by going about their business mm-hmm. um, and shoot as much on location as possible. Um, and like Philip Martin, being the guy who made this like magisterially progressive, groundbreaking piece of television, 
um, which is all about um, violence and the effects of violence and marginalization and the effects of marginalization. Um, I don't know. I don't know why he couldn't bring a little more of that sharpness um, to his work on Doctor Who, because he seems like he seems like a good writer who never once got Doctor Who. Do you think it's possible that he was kind of defanged by uh, JNT? Because ultimately he's the script editor, and so he gets final say, doesn't he? No, he's not the script editor, is he? No, he's the producer. You, sir. Yeah. So um, Eric Say would, would be the script editor at this point, I presume. Yeah, and I mean... Yeah. Uh, and, Eric, and he's got a nasty streak, hasn't he? Eric Saywood, I yeah. would have imagined... I, I would imagine Eric Saywood was behind the hiring of Philip Martin because yeah, he was yeah, the yeah. gangster. I'm doubling back on my point, Doc, because yeah, I confused the roles of, of JNT and Eric Saywood. Um, and honestly, I think by this point of his career, I think JN, I think John Nathan Turner was too far into his own personal demons to, sure. to give a fuck, to be honest yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we're, uh, we're coming up on um, The Two Doctors soon, which has, shall we say, a little bit of a nasty streak to it. It does, yeah. Um, so it, it's it's not like Doctor Who as an entity was 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 scared of getting a bit nasty. Mm. Um, and this 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 season is is um, infamous for it, isn't it as well? Yeah. Um, uh, for moments, I mean, the, there's there's obviously bits of upsetting violence in Attack of the Cybermen, um, but then you've got like bloodless bore fests like the Mark of the Rani and Time Lash. Yeah. Sure. Um, which I, I, I don't think would alarm a highly strung cat, mm. <laughs> uh, I, with the possible exception of some of the acting. I mean, like some of that is pretty horrific. But um, I mean, I, I know it's so very, very easy to bash time lash, but um, I think probably you could have got Ruggiero Deodato to go to South America and do some casting and he'd have found better actors than the ones they found for uh, for, for Time Lash. Um, we can't not mention stuff like Brazil. Do you wake from your finest fantasy only to return to your daily nightmare? Is your mother about to look younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams... I love you. In my dreams, I love you. ...still have a few doubts? Then it's time to take a stand. To break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. And the sun makers, can we, Doc, when we're talking about this story? Where are we? We're still in the solar system. Pluto? Pluto? Ninth planet. Breathable atmosphere, that's wrong. There are buildings. Pluto's a lifeless rock. It is like Earth. We created a new environment for them here on Pluto. Six suns to be fueled and serviced. The taxes, I can't pay the taxes. Taxes are the primary consideration to them. These taxes, they are like sacrifices to tribal gods. Then the people should rise up and slaughter their oppressors. He's a time lord. 
and as the doctor, he is an alien landed on this planet by mistake. Has a long history of violence and of economic subversion. He will not be sympathetic to my company's business methods. You blood-sucking leech! Within ten seconds, everyone in the city will be dead. Brazil was released one month after this story was aired. Um, it's a fantastic call. Um, yeah. I haven't thought of it. Thank uh -huh. you for thank you for pointing it out. Yeah, but 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 neither can have influenced the other because you know they were they were actually released so close together. Yeah, and I mean, um, I've never heard that. Philip Martin was 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 anything to do with Terry Gilliam. Um, mm -hmm. Philip Martin Philip Martin only ever worked at Pebble Mill. Sure. Um, of the other influences, I mean, we've we've got to talk. If we want to talk about stuff that was happening in the real world, come on, Doc. Um, this is your bag. Yeah. So, violence on television and pornography and censorship were nothing if not the watchwords of their day. Now, weren't they? Mm -hmm. This is uh, this is prime Mary Whitehouse era, isn't it? It's prime Mary Whitehouse era. It's coming right off the back of um, the Minneapolis ordinances, mm -hmm. which was Andrew Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon's attempt to um, have pornography classified as hate speech, sure, so that it could therefore actually be banned. We're also one year after the, uh, uh, the what was it called? The, like the Video Nasties Act. I can't remember the exact title of it. The Video Recordings Act. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're like just about to begin the bloody slide into um, the um, the Satanic Panic and the uh, the heavy metal suicide. Mm -hmm. And you know, Thatcher's got a, a, a firm grip. On, on, on the government, so you know, conservatives hold power. Yeah, and I mean, uh, there was kind of like a, a, a joke in the news media at the time um, that government censorship was so effective that um, reportage from the front line of the Crimean War was being done in newspapers faster than it was from the Falk from the front line of the Falklands War. Mm. <laughs> and Peter Furman was, uh, you know, using his Peter meter to determine what grown adults were allowed to fucking watch um yeah and um someday we haven't got time now um but um someday i i i, I need we, we need to have a chat about the um the anecdote um about um the new york ripper the film being deported from the uk <laughs> <laughs> whole film yeah i understand I, i'm joking i do understand the, um, the actual the actual film reels being yeah. taken to heathrow airport and deported yeah. and explicitly deported um i just like the idea of deporting a film like the concept yes. of the film i like that as a, as a, as a well film. precisely uh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's not like we're turning you back or we're sending you back we're, we're turning you out 
um, with a stamp in your passport to say never allowed back in under any circumstances. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, when they're talking about the New York Ripper, by the way, that there's there's a point that I think people miss. Um, you can talk about, nah, I don't agree with censorship under any form. Um, uh, there was a real um, mass murderer, a, a, a real serial killer who had only been um, apprehended recently. And But for one comma, I think many people thought it was merely in very bad taste to distribute a film called The New York Ripper. Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the facts that was suppressed at the time is that there's there's a bit in that film where um, the the two detectives go to interview a murdered woman's husband, and it turns out that as a couple that that they were um, they had a pretty open marriage and that, that they, they were into a bit of swinging, um, and one of the policemen says something to the effect of, uh, you know. Um, if you go letting if if you go letting her out of the kitchen dressed like that, what do you what, what do you expect is going to happen to her? You're as guilty as she is. Right. Um, the, these facts were suppressed at the time, um, but members of the Yorkshire Constabulary had been overheard saying very very similar things about mm. the people who were murdered by Peter Sutcliffe. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when 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 you have a film with with that title. Um, I, and thus we thus we tie back to the Stanford prison experiment stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's censorship, um, and there's not being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, I think whoever took the decision to try and get that film distributed in the UK um, at that particular time, um, I I think they would have been thought of much more kindly by history. Um, I think they would have been treated much more kindly by the courts um, if they just fucking waited a bit. Yeah, just waited a year. Let let let, let the dust settle. Um, I mean, on much, um, it reminds me of the incident where um, uh, Tupac, the rapper, um, got shot but not fatally. Um, in the lobby of a building that was being used by um, Biggie. Um, And while he was in hospital, um, Biggie went, there's no way he could have written and recorded and released the record as a response to what happened, but he permitted the release of a record of his called Who Shot Ya? As we Turn the mics up, turn that mic up, yeah, the beat is knocking, leave that mic up, turn that shit the fuck up, uh, what, turn it louder, yeah, uh. Um, and everyone, including his friends, was sort of unanimous about the fact, like, no, you should have pulled it. That was bad timing. Sure. Yeah. Um, nobody would ever want to censor you, but you should have realised what a dumb piece of bad timing that was. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, that, 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 that is different to censorship, isn't it? That's just like fucking common sense, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, 
um, I think people are also at pains to point out that um, Biggie had also had, by doing this, issued a personal insult against um, a man who was known to be slightly paranoid and extremely headstrong and extremely vengeful. Mm. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the rest is history, I believe. Yeah. Um, my last um, influence, Doc, and then um, maybe we can move on to the production side of things because we need to wrap this in the next 10 or 15 minutes. Sil, we haven't mentioned Sil yet, have we? Um, is, is he a proto Ferengi, do we think? Um, kind of obsessed kind with money. Oh, sorry, Doc, go on. No, kind of. And and I want to know what you thought his purpose in the narrative. So is all of the stuff that's going on on Varos, um, is that done for his entertainment or is is, is he like a sort of um, Rupert Murdoch character? Or is, is he supposed to be the kind of person who would have gone to Italy and bought the distribution rights to the New York Ripper? Mm. Well, did I, I, I just took him as like a cutthroat businessman, um, you know, no sense of morality. Um, but what, but what business is he trying to do? He's, he's trying. He's trying to extract some kind of like either I can't remember the name of it. They, they, they mentioned it several times. Some some kind some some material that that, that the planet Varos has for sale, but he's trying to drive down a price to an unreasonable level isn't he yeah um i mean uh, mineral rights we, they, they, they do that all the time in soft science fiction i would I, I would have thought it would have been far more effective and i can't understand why they didn't think of this if he was just a media mogul or mm. if, if he was just a distributor and what he wanted was the rights to the the atrocities on varos sure yeah yeah um but you know, my link to the Ferengi was obviously like the like the money and profit motive, the lack, total lack of morality. He even sits there and eats fucking grubs like the Ferengi do. Um, yeah. You know. Um, so I suppose the I suppose the question is, Doc. You know, um, when they when 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 the when the Star Trek guys devised the Ferengi, had they seen this, or were both shows? Riffing on something rather unpleasant. What do we think about that? Well, uh, they're they're both riffing on anti-Semitic stereotypes, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that, that that was my take as well. Though. Yeah. For sure. Um, I mean, uh, and um, as we will discover, um, it's not even the last time that Doctor Who goes there this season. Oh yes, you're talking. Uh, oh no, I won't spoil it for the listeners, but I know no. what you're talking. About. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and I'm sure. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure keen-eyed viewers who've watched all the classic stuff will know precisely what we're talking about. Um, it, should we move on to the production stuff, Doc? What do you reckon? Yeah, let's. Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. Welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. This is where we talk about production costumes, direction, etc. Um, we just mentioned, Sil. That design is pretty fucking good, isn't it? The execution of it's very good as well. I, yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I think you've. I don't like the conception of the creature very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if they were planning, it, I mean, it, 
I don't like the design of the creature very much. I don't like the nod the, the, the nodules around its head and stuff like that. But I mean, uh -huh. in, in, in terms of the execution of the idea, I think it's got to be up there in the top five Doctor Who monsters now, hasn't it? It's, it really has, yeah. And, and, and Nabil Shaban really, really puts his fucking back into it as well, doesn't he, as a performance? Oh, God, yeah. Um, yeah. He's clearly having the time of his life. Yeah, you know, those moments when he's, like, gurgling and, like, waggling his tongue around, it's, it really is. It, 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 it's stomach-churning stuff. Brilliant. And, uh, uh, and, and just uh, his delivery of the line, wet me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable stuff. Um, and not surprising that, you know, he got a you got to come back in the following season. I suppose when you go to all the trouble to design something as quite as good as that, you want to use it again, don't you? Sure. Um, I never missed the opportunity to talk about Nicola Bryant in a sort of appraising way. And, um, oh, Jesus Christ, no matter how lovely Nicola is, um, she's got a blue version of the same fucking horrible <laughs> costume that she had in the previous uh, story now, hasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> you think they've, they've just gone to uh, like the local um, CNA and just bought two versions of the same costume in different colours? I don't even know what anyone thought they were. I mean, it's really, really hard to pick clothes. It's really, really hard not to flatter Nicola Bryant. Mm -hmm. At about this time, um, she did an interview in um, The Sun um, and they had a photograph of of her, as you would expect, um, and um, I cut it out and kept it. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> she had a very nice, very stylish um, pair of probably brown lambskin trousers um, and a nice stiff white shirt um, and sort of a, a, a men's necktie. Mm. Um, and my point is, um, the sun a newspaper not known for its progressive gender politics, picked out an outfit for Nicola Bryant to wear um, in their photograph of her that managed to be less vilely sexist than the ones that the producer of Doctor Who gave her to wear. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've, they've, they've got a kind of clip-clopping clip around in those ridiculous fucking shoes as well, though. Uh, which, um, like, Nicola is... Uh, high heels take practice, like, lots of practice. Um... My mom wore three-inch heels for most of her adult life, and then when she retired and had to stop wearing them, um, she um, quite literally had come down. Um, she had to saw down her high-heeled shoes one quarter of an inch at, the, uh, at, uh, at a time uh, because her calf muscles had contracted so much over the uh, the previous sort of twenty-five or thirty years. Fucking hell! Yeah, so just just to get 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 just to get used to wearing flats. Yeah, uh, she yeah. had to stretch her calf muscles out. Um, high heels take practice. They take socialisation. Um, if you're not used to them, you can't suddenly wear high heels and expect to walk normally. And God knows I've tried. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and you you can't do it. Um, yeah. It takes, I mean, at least several months, and I would say several years of practice. And I mean, it's just it's just mean to stuff mm. someone who isn't used to them into shoes like that and then make them run. And you can tell and you can tell she's not used to them. You can tell she's not used to them uh, because you can tell her musculature is all wrong because mm -hmm. the back of her calves look fat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the way she's walking just isn't you know walking or running just isn't quite 
doesn't look well versed in it, you know, in, in the clothes she's got on. Um, <clears throat> we've got an inevitable Nazi influence in in in, in like the the high ranking officer's uniform. I suppose you know, same old, I guess. You know, um, set dressing is quite effective though. You know, it, it, quite obviously they're using the same like corridor over and over again, mm-hmm. but they really managed to disguise it reasonably well, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, considering that, I, I don't think Ron Jones's direction is great, but I mean, I, I, I think it's far from terrible. I think it's it. I think it does a lot with what are some pretty limited resources because I think most of the money went on the silk costume. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. Um. I think he does quite a good job of disguising the fact that he's got two rooms and a corridor, and he does quite a good job of making it look like a city. Yeah, I agree, Doc. Yeah. I'm about done with this story. Have you, unless you've got any further production points you want to introduce. I mean, it's. I've got to write this one up as a um, as a disappointing failure. Mm. Um, on paper, the idea of Philip Martin writing a story about civil liberties and censorship and violence on TV and pornography and torture. Um, in the era of Doctor, in, in, in the very season of Doctor Who that was most strongly associated with a very, very laissez-faire attitude towards violence and morality. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I wouldn't expect Ruggiero Deodato, but yeah. I would expect something pretty damn confrontational. Sure. Um, and it just isn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I clearly enjoyed it more than you. There are flaws, no doubt about it. And I, and I share your viewpoints. You know, to a certain extent, um, it, it, it wasn't overreach, it wasn't overstretch, but I admire it for that nonetheless. Um, I enjoyed it far more than I expected to. Um, you know, its reputation is not good, as most of this season is not good, I think, with the exception of Attack and Two Doctors and Revelation. I think the, 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 the others are pretty much dismissed, aren't they? Um, no. What so? Uh, this season isn't highly regarded, except for the three out of five stories that are highly regarded. No, the, the, the three, it's three, out of, three out of six, isn't it, Doc? Because you've got this, so, so half are and half aren't, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think amongst premiership football teams, like winning 50% of your matches is a respectable ratio, don't you? I think you're being very pedantic there, Doc. But, uh, <laughs> but I'll take your point, brother. <laughs> um, will I watch it again in a hurry? Probably not. Um, but while it was running, Doc, I had a good old time, and that's all really I can ask from a Doctor Who story. Yeah, um, I mean, I, what can I say? I didn't watch it for 35 years. Um, if I don't watch it for another 35 years, I'll almost certainly be dead by then, and <laughs> I don't think I'll have missed out on a great deal. Um, it's um, one final question yeah. um, Where was the vengeance? What was the vengeance? That's a very good point. Yeah, I did consider the title and I've got absolutely no idea. Not a single clue for you, Doc. The only thing I can come out with is I imagine it's a title that Philip Martin or maybe Eric Saywood dreamt up as uh, like some, uh, uh, the kind of title that a video nasty would have had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah I, I, it, I think it's just an... It's a nice sounding title with a cool bit of alliteration. 
and so they went with yeah. it. Yeah, that, I don't think there is any vengeance stuff. I think you're right. Okay, um, that's all. Contact us if you wish, guys. Different doc sos at gmail.com. Um, Twitter at sos different, and surely you remember the, the Facebook address, don't you, doc? <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> Mo.moses.1048. It rolls off the tongue. Um, join us next time when we'll be talking about Sylvester McCoy's third story, which I'm sorry to tell you, Doc, is Delta and the Bannermen. Look forward to that. Look forward to that one. God. <laughs> Are you going to be there, Doc, in spite of that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, just before we go. Um, if Vengeance on Varos had been um, a cheap, nasty exploitation movie from the early 1980s, I think the tagline would have to have been, there's no vengeance. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, very good. Doc. See you later. <laughs>